This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America on this edition of the program as King Charles III ascends the British throne in the wake of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. What impact will the monarchy have overseas? Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. King Charles, whose official coronation ceremony will be on Saturday, May 6, 2023, is not only the king of the United Kingdom, but also the head of state of more than a dozen other independent countries that were once British colonies. According to a report by the Council on Foreign Relations, Charles is the monarch of 14 additional countries, including Canada and others across the Asia Pacific and Caribbean, which are known as the Commonwealth Realms. They are distinct from the Commonwealth of Nations, a loose grouping of 54 countries which used to be part of the British Empire, most of which are no longer subjects of the monarchy, according to the Council report. Report author James McBride reminds us that, quote, in the wave of colonization that occurred after World War II, dozens of newly independent countries emerged out of the remnants of the British Empire. Many of these, including India, Nigeria, and Pakistan, became republics, discarding the monarchy altogether and replacing it with another head of state, usually a president. That decades-long process continues to unfold. The latest country to leave the monarchy behind was Barbados in 2021. Altogether, 17 countries left during Elizabeth's reign. Close quote. Are more countries contemplating leaving the monarchy? Can the monarchy remain relevant, or is it becoming an anachronism of a bygone era? How will King Charles III deal with nations who are questioning the benefit of the monarchy as a valuable source of political legitimacy and stability? How could the monarchy's role change under King Charles III? Well, for more on these critical issues, we turn to two distinguished regional experts. Nicholas Westcott is a former British diplomat who served as British High Commissioner to Ghana and as Managing Director for Africa and the Middle East in the European External Action Service. Currently, he is director of the Royal African Society, and that's a London-based nonprofit membership organization which promotes relations between the United Kingdom and Africa. And Calvin Dark, he is a principal and co-founder of RC Communications. That's a Washington-based public relations and media training firm, an analyst of U.S. and international affairs. Calvin is also a recognized researcher and author on African-American history. He is the author of the forthcoming book, McMaster's Will, The Scheme That Almost Freed Us, detailing the life and freedom fight of his enslaved great-great-grandfather, Aaron McMaster's. And both gentlemen, join me via Zoom. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Nicholas Westcott, let me start with you. Let's start with getting both of your thoughts on the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Her historic reign, of course, spanned 70 years It's interesting to talk about her impact, especially overseas, and also now the challenges ahead. She presided over decolonization and so many changes in the former colonies. What are your thoughts? Her reign was the half of the 20th century and the first quarter of 21st century. I have never known any other 
monarch in my whole lifetime, and that goes for most people in the UK. As you say, she embodied in herself the extraordinarily rapid change. She was born into an empire that spanned the globe, and she finally passed away. Britain was a totally transformed country, socially, politically, economically. And through all that, she provided an extraordinary element of continuity, which people found reassuring. The Queen was always there. And that was recognised internationally as well. She was the longest monarch in the world and knew everybody because she had been around so many people that had state visits. Presidents came and went, but the Queen was always there. She provided a focal point for both British nationality and citizenship within the UK but also as a symbol of the UK internationally. And Calvin Dard, let me turn to you. As we said, her historic reign spanning both the end and the dawn of new eras for the monarchy, especially overseas. What are your thoughts with regard to Queen Elizabeth II? Well, I think given the length of her reign, she was an institution, you know, which is kind of an interesting thing for an American to say. While there are definitely political components to it, her interactions with so many U.S. presidents, addressing Congress and all of that, it's more in the pop culture realm that I think has uh, endeared the royal family. And then, you know, she's been the embodiment of that, I know, for my life and for much of the lives of many Americans. So from that sense, she's been an institution. Now, of course, as we think about, you know, issues related to the monarchy, the politics behind it, what her reign meant apart from the cultural significance, I think people, especially in this country, are still trying to figure that out because it seemed to me that during her lifetime, for the most part, she was able to rise above the politics that are associated with her, the institution, and the UK. And I think that was because she had been there so long. It was such an institution. So I think that Americans are now thinking about the British monarchy in ways that they hadn't before because the symbol of it, for us at least, you know, has passed on. Calvin, there's no question that Queen Elizabeth rose above politics. And the question now, of course, is can King Charles III do the same? Nicholas Westcott, speaking of the Commonwealth realms for which the British crown is the head of state, the monarchy has been a source of British soft power, diplomatic influence. Even before, however, the Queen's passing, Barbados decided to leave the monarchy behind. How widespread do you expect this trend to be under King Charles III? I think it could be an exaggerated because the realm is a relatively small number of countries. Okay, some of them are big, Australia, Canada, and many in the Caribbean. The sovereignty of the British monarch is a contested issue. But across the Commonwealth as a whole, the majority of countries do not have the king as the head of state, but remain integral members of the Commonwealth. It's a well-charted path to move from having the monarch as a head of state to being a republic. And it doesn't make that much difference to be honest, in the relations between, say, Britain and Barbados, which has announced its wish to uh, become a republic, but it doesn't change the relations between the peoples or the governments. It's, if you like, a ceremonial. People still attach importance to it, and it is a contested issue in some of the countries where she is a realm, because some people like to have a head of state who is distinct from their local politicians, and other people say, no, this is a foreign imposition, we should be fully independent, we should choose our own 
head of state. So it's a domestic issue in these countries, but it's not a fundamental issue between the UK and countries that remain part of the realm. Turning to you, Calvin Dark, do you think it is mostly a domestic issue for some of the Commonwealth realms, such as Barbados recently, and perhaps others leaving the monarchy, because the relations will be pretty much the same between the people of the country in question and the UK? How do you see it? There is a rising tide of anti-royal sentiment. There's going to be a new brand, so to speak. King Charles is the figurehead, no more the more popular queen. Yes. When Barbados, I believe it was the end of last year when this was in the news about removing the monarch as head of state, that made a lot of pop culture news among African-Americans in this country because it represented, for us at least, a vestige of colonization ending. And I know that's simplistic. I know that it's a lot more complicated than that. And I just thought it was interesting that Black Americans followed that because that's what it meant for them. Now, one of the things that I was wondering about after the passing of the Queen is in a lot of these countries of the realm, I can remember through most of my life, discussions about removing the monarchy as the head of state. And I think that a lot of that didn't go as far as it could have because Queen Elizabeth had built up 70 years of being an institution. And it's really hard to kind of get rid of an institution everybody has known all their lives, even though we've all known King Charles now for all of his life. The people don't have that same vested interest in him. And so I think that those movements in those countries and the conversation around having countries in the realm with the monarchy as the head of state, I think that those conversations will be a lot more candid and there'll probably be more of them because once again, King Charles hasn't built up that 70 years of leadership and not respect, but more so being an institution in these countries that we're speaking of. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you are listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. My guests are Nicholas Westcott. He's director of the London-based Royal African Society and international affairs analyst Calvin Dark, from whom you just heard. He's principal and co-founder of the Washington-based public relations and media firm RC Communications. We're discussing the impact of the British monarchy overseas as King Charles III inherits the throne in the wake of Queen Elizabeth's death. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voaafrica.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel or connect with us on Facebook at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Here's a shout out to a loyal Facebook fan, Charles Titose. He's an interpreter who lives in Shimoyo, Mozambique, and a member of the Commonwealth. If you want to hear your name on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Back to you, uh, Nicholas Westcott, to continue this discussion about some of the countries in the Commonwealth realm that are considering leaving after Barbados. We are hearing rumblings from Jamaica, Belize, and Bahamas. But we also know that there are some conversations being had in Canada, albeit a minority. Australia supports a referendum on the issue, and New Zealand apparently supports moving past the monarchy. What are the prospects, in your view, for this trend to accelerate under King Charles? Yeah, I think Calvin makes two very important points. That though, as I was saying, in terms of relationships between the governments and the political and economic relations, it makes little difference whether a country is a normal member of the Commonwealth or part of the realm. Symbolically, 
it does have real significance in two ways. Firstly, because of this conflation or the historic heritage of the royal family, the royal name and colonial rule. And that is important. It has a real impact. That's the main impetus, certainly in Barbados, in Acre, and some of the other countries for wanting to cut the tie directly with the monarchy. But secondly, the transition from Queen Elizabeth, who grew up in the empire, managed the transition in many ways. And I think it's an underappreciated part of her skill that she sustained very good relations with all the Commonwealth countries after independence and helped British people accept the loss of the empire and understand that these countries were now equal and independent. And she played an important role in that. But moving through now to King Charles III, he knows the Commonwealth countries, and the realm very well. He's visited enormously widely, but he doesn't have that 70 years of continuity of respect of the relations that his mother had. And therefore, he does have to accept that his relationship with them is going to be different because it doesn't have that historical legacy. And that the other historical legacy of colonial rule is one that needs to be faced up to. Interestingly, he has begun to address this kind of issue in the speech he gave in the Caribbean when he was last there, effectively regretting the past of slavery. And I think the monarchy is going to have to face more directly these issues, both at home and in the relations overseas. And that will play a part in the decision of various countries, whether they want to stay a part of the realm or become independent. I suspect that debate is going to gather speed, to be honest. And I think in the next 10 years, we'll see some significant changes. Calvin Dark, turning back to you with respect to this legacy of colonial rule and the slave trade, Nicholas Westcott says that King Charles did uh, express regret for that. Nonetheless, many countries are clamoring for a more full-throated sense of apology for slavery colonization, as well as even some sort of reparations to the former colonies. Jamaica, Belize, and Bahamas in particular, I have read, are calling for reparations. Once again, do you think think that these types of calls and, you know, leaving the Commonwealth realms will, in fact, accelerate under King Charles? Yes, I think they will. And I'll tell you from uh, the perspective of an African-American, one of the things that I've noticed since the Queen's death, but even before, when you think about King Charles and then even Prince William, when they speak on these topics or when they address them, I think they want to be seen as kind of like a neutral bystander or someone who's looking at the past and acknowledging how bad it was. But that actually takes away from some of their credibility, because what I think they need to portray is if they want their initiatives and their sentiments on these issues to be taken seriously, they can't distance themselves from the actions of their past because they are where they are because of those past actions. And I think that's the part that's kind of missing. I think that Americans, particularly in my group of friends, for example, as we were watching all of the procession and with the Queen's funeral, something that just stood out was the jewels and the diamonds that were on parade. And that's a very real symbol that I know, especially on social media, people talked about a lot. And I really hope that King Charles and the rest of the royal family, as they do this, they have to realize that while they may want to address the past in as much as they can in their non-political roles as royals, they also have to realize that when you're wearing the physical symbols like diamonds that were taken from countries or that have been asked to 
to be returned to countries and reparations and all of that, that it sends a conflicting message. And honestly, I don't know how they're going to be able to navigate that. Turning back to you, Nicholas Westcott, you mentioned earlier that King Charles has expressed regret for the slave trade, etc. What more do we know of King Charles's perspective on the monarchy overseas? Has he done or said anything thus far in his new role to indicate how he will approach these countries? King Charles had a reputation as Prince of Wales of being uh, rather more outspoken than his mother. But since taking on the role of monarch, he has been very discreet in what he's said. I think Calvin has put his finger on a key point, that the British monarchy is in some ways trapped. It's trapped between tradition and modernity. It knows it has to modernize, but it also knows a huge part of its value is carrying forward these national traditions and all the ceremonials that we had around the Queen's funeral and the ceremonial that there will be for the coronation, as uh, Calvin says, putting all these jewels on display. You know, so where did they come from? How were they acquired? You know, raises a lot of questions. So there's a huge value in showing this continuity and traditions from the past, but it's also challenging for the present. And that's, I think, a question that King Charles will address, but rather gently. To some extent, he's the continuity candidate. He will try to follow very much in the footsteps of his mother. But it's a much bigger challenge, I think, for the new Prince of Wales, for Prince William, who has to represent a new generation, a new way of looking at these things. As Calvin says, a lot of people are questioning it. And there's a lot of pressure for, as you said, reparations, restitution, not just of the Koinor diamond in the crown jewels, but the Benin bronzes in the British Museum. There's huge demands. You came and took all this stuff, you know, we want it back. And I think the royal family needs to be quite careful because it's not the government. A lot of these decisions are not for the royal family, but for the government. And yet they are implicated because they are the representation of the state and they can't avoid that. So I think they could actually show a lead to the government by being more upfront about repentance, repentance for things past. It's not in their power to organise the restitution of things, but they can symbolise that, in fact, as the Queen herself did in relation to Ireland, her speech on her first state visit after the Good Friday Agreement was a masterpiece of political reconciliation, which acknowledged what had gone in the past, that it was not a good thing, but looking towards a future where we could overcome those kind of things. And I think that will be a kind of template that certainly the new Prince of Wales, possibly his father, the King, will take forward in trying to build a new set of relations with countries with whom we have a contested past from colonialism. Thank you for that, Nicholas. And turning back to you, Calvin, for any further thoughts with respect to what we may know of King Charles's perspective on the monarchy overseas as he takes the reins, perhaps Prince William. What are your thoughts with regard to how different he will lead from his mother and the interplay with the government with respect to expressing repentance and going so far as perhaps reparations for slavery, colonization. One of the things that Nicholas said that really has been a question of mine is that we're really looking at the evolution of two people, obviously King Charles and how he's going to be that continuity, but also for Prince William, how he is going to develop, how the next generation deals with 
the monarchy. There's a lot of cynicism because, you know, ever since the Queen's death, there have been, you know, so many historical pieces on television and, you know, articles written. And one of the things that got a really cynical take was when there were several instances where the Queen danced with African leaders at very difficult times. And it was kind of shown that that was her using the symbolism to express the things that she could not express politically because that was not a part of her role. And I think it fits. And I think people understand that that was the role that she had to play. But I wonder now, in this day and age, now with King Charles, I think that the world looks at leaders of having to take a stance on something. And I honestly don't know how King Charles is going to reconcile that for the world. What leader now can do that, can be a leader, can address these very, very controversial issues without taking a stance on it. And it's going to be really interesting to see if he can even do that. I don't know if that's even within King Charles's power. And I think that the royal family is going to have to do a really, really good job in explaining what their role is and what they can do and how they can be leaders. Because if they're going to be symbols, I don't think there's going to be enthusiasm for this next generation, especially from the U.S. Turning back to you, Nicholas Westcott, how does Britain's current, at least, unstable political situation, referring to Boris Johnson or now Liz Truss, then, of course, the historic break from the European Union, Brexit, how do these factors affect the monarchy and its ability, traditional ability to wield influence, soft power among the Commonwealth of Nations? Can the two even be separated? Yeah, no, it's a very interesting question. There was a lot of contrast drawn, certainly in people's minds, when the Queen passed away, about her devotion to duty. The fact that she had always seen herself as a servant of the people. She was there to help them. She was there in times of crisis to support. She gave a, a speech during the COVID crisis about we'll meet again, which had a deep impact on people. There was somebody who could take that kind of leadership role. And it was contrasted with the government of the day that was felt to be acting inappropriately, inadequately, not providing the kind of leadership that the country needed. And many people said, you know, thank goodness we have a head of state who is not a politician. So that reinforced the value for many people of the royal family at home. It will be hard for King Charles to replicate that. And as Calvin has said, there is a risk in some places of the royal family becoming a liability because they're seen as a representative of the colonial past. And they have to address this if they're to remain relevant. And I think Calvin, again, has put his finger on the fact that everybody knows King Charles is a huge environmentalist. He wanted to go to COP27 because he wanted to deliver a message that we've got to save this planet. And he now feels a bit constrained from doing that. Well, I think the public would back him up entirely in saying, yeah, you have a voice, you should use it. But there they will tiptoe gently because once the royal family is seen to have taken a political position, which is not shared by everybody in the country, they begin to fall into the kind of bear traps that exist and then they become political shibboleth, uh, something that's bashed back and forth between rival camps. And that they need to avoid. And Calvin Dark, you get the last word with regard to the nexus between a rather unstable political situation currently in Britain, first Boris Johnson and Brexit, and now Liz Truss. How does Britain's relatively unstable political situation affect the monarchy? 
and its ability to wield influence among the Commonwealth of Nations. Well, I think that there are kind of two paths. One is for King Charles to continue the path that his mother took, which was of a different age. And that is where he will stay in the, you know, the non-political role and the political issues, controversies with the UK. He's kind of untouched by them, but the more they increase, the less his influence is. That's the first path. The second path is, and I think this could be an opportunity for the royal family, is to kind of push the envelope a bit, which I know that's very American of me to say that, but I think that if they push the envelope a bit and on very specific subjects that King Charles feels passionate about, we know he's passionate about the environment. We know he's also expressed himself on the legacy of colonialism. I see an opportunity. He could actually inoculate himself a bit from the ups and downs of British politics if he is seen as separate from it, but with a stance and with an opinion. Because if it continues the way that it is now, it will only be as popular to the Commonwealth of Nations as the UK is on the government political side. And a lot of that deals with economics and I don't really think that's a winning formula for King Charles and definitely not for future King William. Well, on that note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I would like to thank my terrific guests, Nicholas Westcott, director of the Royal African Society, and Calvin Dark, principal and co-founder of the public relations and media firm RC Communications. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Please join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. 